everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be with you tonight. We have a great show coming up for you. We got a bunch of different things that we're talking about. Joining us first, we have Medea Benjamin and Masuda Sultan, and they're going to be talking to us about Afghanistan and what's happening there and Joe Biden's pretty sadistic decision that he made about Afghanistan's assets. We're going to get into that. Joining us after that, we have Adolf Reed, major friend of the show, repeat offender. Love to talk to him about so many things. He can talk about politics, about history. And it's really cool because he has a new book out. It's called The South. I'm still finishing it. It's really good. I highly recommend it. And also talking to us about his new podcast called Class Matters. And that's a great podcast. I've been listening to it. So really enjoying that and really excited. And yeah, before I do that, though, here's the other really cool thing to tell you guys. So tonight, I've been doing this a few times. I have my Katie Helper show. And welcome to the Katie Helper show, of course. Welcome to the Katie Helper show. And I do that on YouTube. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a call-in. And call-in is an app that you can download for free. But at 8 p.m., I'm going to be on call-in with Adolf Reed. He's going to be taking your questions. And you literally just call in. I'm also going to invite people to like the stream, share the stream, because you know what just happened? This happened the other day. My monetization is limited. Can you tell me why having on Adolf Reed to talk about racism or having Medea Benjamin and Masuda Sultan to talk about Afghanistan, why any of those things would get your monetization limited? Like there's something unseemly about either of those topics. I don't know. But this is part of the issue with YouTube. It lacks transparency, so we don't even know what their criteria is. And that's why I'm going to ask you to not just hit the like, which I would love for you to do. Please hit the like. If you don't hit the like, you're a coward. But if you can afford it, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show, because that way I'm never relying totally on advertisers, which is what the YouTube model kind of is, which is really quite problematic, as you can see. And if you talk about stuff like Afghanistan or racism, apparently YouTube doesn't like that. So they do not incentivize that. And that's why I bring you these shows that are independent. And I'm just going to, you know, put out my cap. Please become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you join for $1 a month, you get to know that you're helping make the show happen. And you're part of the show, and we're so incredibly grateful. If you pay $5 a month, you get bonus content, like you get extra episodes. So every week you get an extra episode, and there's over like 200 now that you have. So, all right, just again, just a reminder, please download the call-in app so you can join me and Adolf Reed after the show. And please like the stream. I want to see a lot of likes. We got to have people liking the stream. It helps the algorithm so it gets more eyes on it. This is obviously very important stuff. Also, you can join. You can become a YouTube member of the Katie Helper Show. There's Tony DeMeo who says he's a subscriber and I guess also a member, which is why you can see in the chat he has that little lightning thing next to his name. 
And also it's in green. And if you become a member, you get a badge that says you are a member and you get emojis, including emojis of Bodhi, my little dog. Anyway, I think that's all the housekeeping, as they say, that we need to get out of the way. I want to bring in our first two guests, and I'm so excited to bring them on. They're both extremely impressive women, and they have really important things to talk about. Masuda Sultan is an Afghan-American women's rights activist who has worked with NGOs on Afghan women's rights and as an advisor on economic reform with the Asian Development Bank. She's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Women, and Foreign Policy Advisory Committee and the U.S. Afghan Women's Council, and she's part of Unfreeze Afghanistan. Medea Benjamin is the co-founder of the women-led peace group Code Pink and the co-founder of the human rights group Global Exchange. She's received numerous prizes, including the Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Prize from the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the Peace Prize by the U.S. Peace Memorial, the Gandhi Peace Award, and the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation Award. She's a former economist and nutritionist with the United Nations and the World Health Organization. So without any further ado, welcome Medea and Masuda. Hi, how are you? Welcome. Great to be on with you, Katie. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for joining. You guys co-wrote two pieces that are excellent with Cheryl Baynard, I believe is how you say her name, Baynard. You wrote one piece at National Interest called Biden Hammers a $7 billion nail into Afghanistan's coffin. This disastrous decision needs to be stopped in its track. And then you wrote a piece at Responsible Statecraft called Biden's $7 billion Afghan heist. The president's order diverting frozen funds to American families of 9-11 victims will only make the humanitarian and economic crises in Afghanistan worse. So can you set up what exactly Biden just decided to do and what also led him to this decision, like what the context is? Uh, Maybe Medea wants to take this one. The context is that when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan and the Taliban came into power over the whole country in August, the Biden administration immediately imposed unilateral sanctions against the Taliban and froze the Taliban's assets. That was $7 billion in the Federal Reserve in the United States. And then he advised the other countries that were holding assets, total of $2 billion in uh, Europe and the United Arab Emirates, as well as IMF and World Bank money that was going to go to Afghanistan. And he said to put a hold on all of that. So you can imagine when a country that was dependent on 75% of its public expenditures were coming from the outside, that dried up. And then the legs were pulled out from the economy. And I would liken it to an economic blockade because uh, it really meant that Afghanistan could not participate in the international economic system, but also it meant that internally it didn't have the funds it needed for the basic functioning of an economy. So people couldn't get their savings out of the bank. Uh, Businesses couldn't get money to pay salaries. Uh, The government didn't have the money needed to pay hundreds of thousands of public servants. And you can imagine the repercussions of this with the rising hunger and the rising inflation, prices of food and fuel. Also uh, experienced a, a very terrible drought this year and now a very harsh winter. So you put all of that together and you have a, a massive economic collapse in Afghanistan. And Biden really being responsible for a large part of that, taking revenge for having lost a 20-year battle against the Taliban 
taking revenge out on the ordinary Afghan people. And so we started this group, Unfreeze Afghanistan, when we were approached by a group of about 40,000 teachers, women, uh, who said, well, it's all very well and good that you want the Taliban to allow girls to go to school, but if we're not getting paid our salaries, that's not very helpful. And so we started working to try to get these different entities to release the money. And we've been doing that now for six months. And the final wrench in this whole thing came on Friday when Biden issued an executive order that said, okay, we're going to take these frozen funds and instead of returning it back to the central bank so that Afghanistan could have a chance at a functioning, sustainable economy, we're going to divide it in two, one half of it to be used as possible compensation for lawsuits that 9-11 families have brought against the Taliban for having sheltered al-Qaeda, and the other to be used to go to the Afghan people in some way that we're not sure about. Originally, we thought it was going to be through international organizations for humanitarian aid, which we were opposed to because we thought this money really has to go for shoring up the economy not for humanitarian aid. There's other monies that have to be raised for that. Now the administration is walking back a bit and saying, well, we're not sure how that $3.5 billion is going to be used. In any case, you know what? It's not Biden's money. It's not this administration's money. It's not the United States money. It's the money of the people of Afghanistan. So we've been very much against the freezing the funds. And now we're against Biden saying that he can somehow in a very dictatorial or, or imperial manner, decide where Afghans' money is going to be dispersed. Yeah, it's really quite disgusting on so many levels. And I think that what's interesting is that the 9-11 families payment, it makes no sense. But even if you thought it would, I mean, it's, it's interesting that there are 9-11 families who are speaking out against this, as you guys cite in your article Barry Admonson, who lost his brother in the 9-11 attack and is part of the group called 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, is advocating against Biden's decision, quote, we can't bring our loved ones back, but we can save the lives of people in Afghanistan by advocating that the Biden administration release this money to its rightful owners, the Afghan people. I mean, it's just such a sick thing to do to pit together people whose family members were killed in 9-11 and people who are just trying to survive in Afghanistan, whose only crime was being born and living in Afghanistan. Anyway, sorry, that was not as much as a question as it was a kind of frustration indictment. Well, but Masuda has an incredible background in all of this. So Masuda, you should give some of your own background and, and uh, yeah, respond to this. Yeah, sure. You know, we were concerned about uh, the rate of increasing rate of poverty. We had at one point gotten it down to the mid 30 percentile. And then it started going steadily up the last few years with a drawdown in aid to Afghanistan and just a drawdown of the military presence because a lot of that economy was built, you know, there was a military industrial complex that the country was feeding off of and a lot of contracts, a lot of supply contracts and others. So in addition to just bad management by the previous government led to an increase in the poverty rate. And we were watching this saying, this is really getting bad. It went to 60%, then it went to 70%. COVID hit, brought it up to 70%. And then people were not getting paid in the healthcare sector. Teachers were not getting paid. And everything seemed to be getting worse. 
And one had to question what the previous government's priorities were, because when they came to meet President Biden, instead of asking for food aid, they were asking for, you know, helicopters and weapons. And that became even more concerning to me. You know, we welcomed President Biden's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. You know, the war, 20 years is a really long time. It's America's longest war. And the people of Afghanistan just need to get on with their lives. You know, for them, it's been 43 years of this. And so that was a welcome thing to happen. But then when you took the troops out and you take out 75% of the country's budget, and then all of these other, by the way, uh, healthcare and education projects were externally funded, meaning by donors off the budget. So like 75% of the health clinics were not operational suddenly. In the middle of, let me explain, COVID, a pandemic, you have a famine within a pandemic, you have the collapse of the previous government, you have the worst drought in 35 years, and the end of a 43-year war. It's worse than the Great Depression. It's happening faster. And then on top of that, you seize a country's assets and people think, okay, well, if I can't get money out of the bank today, maybe, you know, they wait in line for, you know, 10 hours, days, two days, three days. Sometimes they get to the, to the teller and they can't withdraw. You know, it was $200 max per month before. Now it's $400. But by the time they get there, the bank doesn't have the money. You maybe get $100. The provincial bank branches are shutting down because they don't have money. People who have worked their whole lives and were told, hey, we have a modern banking system now. This is what the international experts that came into Afghanistan told them, put your money in the bank, take it out of the mattress. You know, this is part of becoming a modern country. And then they are now in a position when they're experiencing this collapse and they're trying to get on with their lives and they can't even withdraw their savings from the bank. This is what we've done to these people. And it's resulted in 22 million people starving through one of the worst famines in history, and a million children expected to die this winter. It is so awful what is happening to this country. I mean, to them, this is worse than the 20 years of war, actually. Our economic sanctions, freezing up their banking system, seizing their central bank assets. You don't have to take it from me. Dr. Paul Spiegel, who's an expert from Johns Hopkins, went over with the WHO, and he came back and said, we're going to kill more people due to these economic sanctions than the Taliban ever killed in the 20 years of war than the U.S. has killed, in fact. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we want to do with this country? How do we want to treat these people? I understand that we were at war with them, but we are not at war anymore. We need to think about how to stabilize Afghanistan. We need to think about what is good for the Afghan people so that we don't create more enemies in Afghanistan. The whole point of some of our programs, like investing in girls' education, the brightest spot of our 20-year intervention in Afghanistan, hands down, is girls' education and healthcare investments. We need to do those kinds of things to win friends and not the kinds of things that we're doing right now. Um, so it's with that that the DNI came together to start Unfreeze Afghanistan as advocates of women and advocates of education. And by the way, Katie, you talk about women's rights activists. What would we care about? We care about girls' education. We care about teachers getting paid. Did you know that there's 220,000 teachers in Afghanistan and somewhat less than half of them are women? And that that's the number one employment, the number one profession for women. So if you care about women's rights, you should care about teacher salaries getting paid. 
Mindia, do you have something to add? Oh, always. I love to hear Masuda talking. So I wanted to add on about this compensation issue for the 9-11 families, because when Biden said, all right, we're going to take $3.5 billion and set it aside for these lawsuits, uh, Masuda and I go back 20 years when members of her own family were killed by U.S. bombs. And we came back to Washington and hit the pavement in D.C., demanding that there be compensation funds set up for Afghan victims. And over the years, I would say that fighting hard for each victim, maybe they would get about $2,000 for having lost a loved one. And you compare that to the 9-11 families who got $2 million, it shows you a little bit what the United States thinks the lives of Afghans are worth. And then to go 20 years forward and pick on the perhaps poorest country in the world and say, uh, we want to take the few billions that you have and put it towards 9-11 families when there was not one Afghan that was involved in the 9-11 attacks, when their majority of Afghans today were not even born in 2001. It's a cruel punishment. And I also want to add on that, that I have worked over the years with groups of 9-11 families who were trying to sue the Saudis because 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. And because the FBI had all kinds of documents that it wouldn't release to the public to show connections between some of those hijackers and the royal family. And the U.S. government did not want to make those public. And the Saudi wealth fund is the largest wealth fund in the entire world. So why not go after the wealthy Saudis if you're going to go after anybody and not pick on the poor Afghans? And we see in the last couple of days when the Biden administration announced this, the reaction inside Afghanistan is a tremendous backlash coming from all kinds of people, not just the central government members themselves, the Taliban spokespeople, the Minister of Defense, but also coming from people who uh, do, hate the Taliban uh, and say this is a, a terrible thing to do to the Afghan people. It's united a lot of Afghans inside and outside the country that say we had nothing to do, we were not responsible for 9-11, um, don't steal our money. I want to add to that. It's interesting because even the Taliban have said, this is not our money. And they've said this repeatedly since coming into power, saying this is the Afghan people's money. These reserves were built up over 20 years, a country's reserve, you know, and private wealth of individuals, NGO money, you know, company money. All of this is tied into the nine and a half billion, in fact, that has been frozen, uh, the seven billion being frozen by the Federal Reserve and now uh, being split by President Biden. So I hope that your listeners will be as outraged as we are. Um, I want to I wanna uh, say that uh, this expert, uh, Professor Barney Rubin, probably America's foremost expert on Afghanistan, said, so the world's richest country has decided to rob the world's poorest country in the name of justice, a fitting end to the war on terror. Human rights groups have spoken out against this. They say that commandeering the private wealth of a nation 
is just sets a bad precedent. I mean, doing this, what's to stop other countries from taking the sovereign wealth of other nations, citing that the United States has done it, again, in the name of justice, in the name of the war and terror? It's, it's just wrong. And I'm so sorry, Masuda, about your family. Can you share a little bit about what happened and what the process was with trying to get some accountability from the United States? Well, this was back in October of of 2001. I went back to make a documentary and I found out when I was in Pakistan uh, that they had fled to Pakistan as a result of what had happened. They were living in Kandahar on October 7th when the U.S. war started there. There were attacks and bombs being dropped and they happened to live next to a Taliban-controlled building. So they decided to move out of the city and go to their farmhouse like two hours, three hours outside of the city. And there one night, there was an attack on their farmhouse and their village, and 19 people were killed. They described a very gruesome scene to me of children running, of you know them seeing a pregnant woman get sliced in half. And these little girls were describing to me, like their aunt put their head on their knee as they were sitting, and the blood started spilling out of the head. This little girl was telling me, you know, she showed me gunshots. So they were trying to figure out why this happened because they weren't, you know, they hated the Taliban. They had no interest in this war. They were just trying to live their life and get out of the way. I came back and met Medea and Medea was taking these 9-11 family members to Afghanistan to meet other Afghans, civilian victims of the war. And we came back and started asking questions. I never got answers on my family, but we did manage to set up this fund with Medea leading with 9-11 family members. It also set a precedent in American law, I think a better one than President Biden has set, to compensate civilian victims of the war. And, you know, what's interesting about that work is that over the years, we started hearing about lots of civilian casualties, both by the Afghan government, actually, and the U.S. government. And that helped drive the war and make it worse. One of the reasons the Taliban was able to take over is that people in villages, in rural areas, particularly in the South, join them in the fight against the Afghan government and the United States because of these civilian casualties. So when we talk about, again, winning hearts and minds, and I was around enough for the war. I lived in Afghanistan for a number of years during the war to keep hearing this about, you know, CVE and how you bring the population to your side and how you win their hearts and minds. And at the same time, you needed to do something about these civilian casualties. So I actually believe that Medea's work has made Americans safer because when you do something like that and there's children and women and innocent people harmed and you don't compensate them and you don't talk to them and you don't account for it, that just breeds more and more resentment amongst the population. So I'm really grateful to have had Medea with me on this journey and to connect again all these years later And I'm going to say it, I wasn't always against the war. There were times that I thought it might be good for Afghanistan. There are times when the statistics for women were getting better. Life expectancy and maternal mortality rates were dropping. So we started thinking, okay, well, maybe maybe this is good for women. And there were lots of you know great programs to lift up women, particularly in Kabul or some of the big cities. But then in the rural areas and in the battlefield areas in particular, there are women going through such extreme hardship, you know, losing not just one or two or three or five members of their families, but you know, eating grass and like hiding from bombs and like having this daily occurrence. So there's so much trauma in this population. There's such an incredible amount of pain and trauma in this population. I really hope that we can find a way to heal and as women to 
encourage the kinds of investments in people, you know, education, healthcare, all of the kinds of things that, for example, that USA does some incredible work. It makes me really proud as an American to see the USAID signs up at girls' schools and like at the World Food Program Distribution Center. You know, those are the kinds of things we want to be known for as Americans, our generosity to others. We have a lot of work to do in the healing department. And I hope that we, together with Medea, that whatever we do, that we help people heal from this war. And just a final question. What do you say to people who think that they're being humanitarians and are like, oh, but the Taliban is bad. We don't want to put money in their hands. Medea, go ahead. Go for it, Masuda. Well, look, the Taliban are the de facto rulers of Afghanistan. And the central bank is a technocratic institution. It was built by the United States on the model of the Federal Reserve Bank. It has the same laws as before. It has the same audit committee. It has the same international auditor. It has software systems, transparent mechanisms for currency auctions. You can monitor everything. You can send them $5 million and tell them to do a currency auction, uh, which they've been doing every week for 20 years, which they can pull off with their eyes closed. We could have done that. But instead, we said, oh, no, the Taliban are in control. We don't want to send any of their own money back because they'll steal it. So instead, we'll decide what to do with it. And we think it's better rather than inject liquidity into their economy, which they need right now. We'll just set it aside for humanitarian aid, which probably 70% of it will go to overhead. But they're walking that back now. So we're hopeful and we need the pressure to be kept on. We need ordinary Americans to speak up about this, to say, don't steal another country's wealth. Don't steal the most poor people's wealth. And don't steal the wealth of people we've been at war with for 20 years. So I put in our petition in the chat, but for anybody who can't see it, you could just go to unfreezeafghanistan.org and join us in calling on the Biden administration to give the Afghan people back their money. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate your comments. Also, of course, really appreciate all the tireless work that you're doing. And to both of you, I say thank you and keep on keeping on and would love to have you back on. And I'll definitely spread the word about this petition. We'll get people to sign it. Great. Thanks for having us on. Thanks so much. Of course. See you soon. Bye. And that was Masuda Sultan and Medea Benjamin. Really honored to have both of them join us on the show. But we're going to bring on our next guest, and we are so excited to bring on our next guest. So without any further ado, so excited to be bringing into the stream the inimitable, the esteemed Adolf Reed. Hello, Adolf. How are you? Oh, fine, fine. And how about you, Katie? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so excited to have you join us on the show. I've really been enjoying your book. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. And it's called The South, Colin Jim Crow and its Afterlives. And you also have a new podcast out called Class Matters. And that's been great. So you're just producing tons of new great content. I wanted to ask you, what made you write this book, The South? Well, it's interesting. I may say something about this like in the intro, but over 20 years ago, like a couple of friends of mine, both also with roots in the Deep South, one a few years older, the other a decade younger. And I was just sitting around musing about the fact that when our general age cohort leaves the scene of history, there won't be anyone around with uh, direct living memories of what the Jim Crow order was like as a you know, lived experience. So, you know, we chatted about that for a bit off and on a few times. And, uh, then I just started writing, I think around 2002, 2003, and wasn't sure what I was writing for. And I quickly wrote myself into a no person's land, uh, 15,000 words, too long for an article, too short for a book. And then 
sat on it and there was nothing really. It was mainly a series of vignettes, right? And then eventually the historian and my good friend, comrade Barbara Jean Fields, urged me to turn it into a book, basically. And my former agent, Faith Childs in Manhattan, read it. And this was key. Like She gave me, I think, 15 points to keep in mind for the revision. And that's what I needed. And that's how it became a book. And of course, Barbara Fields wrote the introduction. Right. Yeah, which I'm honored by. Yeah. It's interesting. So you say you are in a no person's land because it it reads kind of like autobiography, kind of like history, kind of like mm-hmm. almost literary criticism, kind <laughs> of like sociology. I mean, it just has a very interdisciplinary feel to it. Well, I tell you, that's why I was kind of moved when uh, Skip Gates compared it to Gene Toomer's Kane, which was like a multi-genre product. I was honored by that. But I mean... Yeah, the one thing I've resisted, and uh, the Verso publicity department will tell you just how much I resisted, is characterizing it as a memoir, because it's not really. It's a rumination on a particular historical period with the boost, I guess, of an insider's perspective. Yeah. So I guess it's valuable to market it as a memoir for publishing purposes? Well, no. I think the people who took the first draft at catalog copy just probably didn't pay any attention to anything at all. And they had like a box that they put a title like that in. In fact, like the initial draft was something like memoir and travelogue. And I thought, oh my God, no. That's when I suggested that that I'd rather have the book die on my computer than go out in the world under that, guys. It got turned around pretty quickly. So you divide it up into different time periods and locations. Can you just share with people? I thought it was so fascinating just learning about your family's origins, where they come from. Well, yeah, my mother's family is uh, most immediately from South Louisiana, and my father's family is most immediately from Southeast Arkansas. My mother's father was a Cuban immigrant, and her mother was from Poincapé Parish. And the funny thing about her is that her mother and her siblings, she was the eldest, and they left her when she was around 12 or 13 with her invalid grandmother to tend for her in New Orleans. And the rest of them moved to Brownsville, Texas for a couple of minutes and then to Tampico, Mexico, and then back up to San Antonio a generation later. So like we cover the Gulf of Mexico, basically, from the eastern border to the western border. And you write in the opening of your introduction, you say, in the early years of the century on sporadic visits to the South after having left the region completely during Ronald Reagan's first months in the White House, I was constantly struck by how much the ways that things had changed in the region seemed to underscore the ways they hadn't, and vice versa, how the ways things haven't changed underscore the way they have. Going there was like traveling back in time, yet at the same time not. So can you expand on this and what you meant by that? Well, it's kind of tough. Because even when I wrote that and felt it and said it to people, it felt like incoherent, semi-New Age babble to me. But I think that really what it comes down to is, and like this is something that might be useful for people to think about, that there are forms of interaction, patterns of expression, sort of an everyday etiquette, right, that's formed in one period around one sort of concrete historical and uh, political economic context and pattern of social relations. And the forms can persist, right? I mean, even though the context that gave them meaning changed radically, right? And I think that's the best way to understand that sort of in and out of time experience that I had, because what I think I was responding to 
was sort of everyday rituals of interaction or of action or modes of expression that would make one think of earlier patterns or earlier expressions of power relations. The forms of expression persist, but the patterns of power relations that gave rise to them have changed, right? So like one expression right, I mean, down in that part of the country is, uh, looks like ain't is, right? Looks like ain't is. Right. And that's kind of a key perspective to walk around with, I think. You give really interesting examples of your experiences that you remember. One of them is when you were riding, was it a ferry that was divided with chicken wire? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was really funny because as a small kid, it like took me a while. And I think this was exacerbated by going to different places in the South, too, because one of the things that people don't think about a lot is that unlike South Africa, say, where petty apartheid was petty apartheid across the country, the etiquette, you know, there's that word again, of enforcement of petty apartheid, of separate but equal, varied from place to place, right? So like, for instance, in Montgomery, one of the precipitants of the bus boycott was a particularly offensive way that segregation in public transportation was enacted. So in Montgomery, blacks would board the front of the bus, pay, get off, and then reboard through the back door. And it didn't happen that way in other places. But one of the indignities in Montgomery was that often enough, the bus drivers would pull off after getting the money, right? Just to be jerks. So in the context of both going back and forth from outside the South into the South, and then to different places in the South, and then just being kind of stupid, it took me a, a good while to internalize the rules, to internalize what the rules were all about. So I was a little kid, and I loved to ride the ferry across the Mississippi River to Algiers, you know, back and forth. And I was on there one day with my grandmother, and we were sitting close to the dividing line, the chicken wire that separated the two sides of the seating area. So I asked her what that chicken wire was about, and she just said to me in a stage whisper, that, well, you know, a lot of crazy people ride the ferry, and like they have to sit on the other side of the chicken wire. Hmm. And I thought, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Did you notice that the crazy people were whiter? Not really, actually. <laughs> yeah, it takes a while for all that to sink in. In fact, I think I thought, well, yeah, good. I'm glad the chicken wire's there. Then. Yeah, right. Thank God for small <laughs> favors. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordoba. See you next time.